Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking Special Projects Editor Asa Christiana, Hello. Senior Editor Matthew Kenny, hey. and also later on in the show we'll wrap up our two-part interview with last year's Society for American Period Furniture Makers Cartouche Award winner Edward Patricks. No, that's not his name. <laughs> <laughs> and he's this year's winner. Uh, Patrick Edwards. Yes, that's true. 2014. Uh, I just, I just yeah. find Aside it. Aside from that, you nailed it. I just always find it interesting <laughs> when folks have two first names. I like that. Um, so anyhow, uh, like, as like me, is that what you're saying? That's Matt true. Actually, Kenny. Matt Kenny. And we have Dylan it's, Ryan. It's not spelled like a God, first there's a name. There's a lot. Though. Yeah, we have a new editor, Dylan Ryan. Um, I'll just repeat my jokes. Go ahead, one more time. Dylan Ryan. Okay. Two first names. Nice. That's our resident hipster on staff. Um, so. Uh, listen, before we start, uh, remember, guys, spread the word about this podcast. If you like it, uh, let your fellow woodworkers know. You can stop by our iTunes page, leave a comment, maybe a nice rating over there. You can even catch us over at iHeartRadio. So before we uh, jump into today's questions, and by the way, we are going to answer our normal number of questions today, even though we still have like another 25 minutes or so of Patrick Edwards. Um, you know, I felt like last week we only did like two questions, and I didn't want to have people feel ripped off, so... We will never shortchange the audience. This is going right. to be, which is hard to except do, for on last a free week podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be impossible. Uh, right. Shop Talk Live, the extended version. Uh, so, anyhow, um, I wanted people to check out the pros laid out by our loyal listener Dean, who recently took us to task via email for having a little fun at the expense of a tool retail, a tool retailer uh, known for hanging out by the docks where the freight is unloaded at the harbor. Uh, yes. So, Dean, just uh, before I lay this all out, uh, Dean is a seems to be a prolific writer, and uh, I just I was really taken aback by his uh, eloquence and style. So here goes, um, gentlemen, and I speak this in the most humble honorific. I'll spare you the usual accolades, which must surely bore you by now. Though I must say this is the finest and most informative form available on the web. My life in woodworking at all other aspects would be bereft without your bi-weekly tonic. Woo! Now I've said it. So That's a good name for the show, the bi-weekly tonic. Bi-weekly tonic or a segment. Tool tonic. Ooh! All right. So, to the point. Recently, you've made disparaging remarks about a certain unnamed tool retailer whose name suggests a body of water where ships seek shelter and goods carried by said vessels. Perhaps some worthiness lurks inside. Long ago, my friends and I collected tools, as opposed to implements of destruction to either the intended target or the operator, procured from various purveyors of the same junk. We collected these so-called tools in a box, not much better than cardboard, after experience taught us the value in quality. We gave this box of ballast to our younger, inexperienced brethren in the hopes that they would understand the folly of purchasing cheap tools without the regret of wasting their hard-earned money. This gift was always eagerly accepted, and we admonished them after... Uh, after the lesson was learned, to add treasures mistakenly procured and pass the lot along to the next neophyte. Last I heard, it was making the rounds of grandchildren, but I digress. Recently, I was fabricating a pair of leaded glass panels for a Michael Pekovich cabinet. Uh, this would be the leaded glass uh, cabinet that he did as a video workshop. Uh, as my miter box wore from repeated cuts, it became more and more difficult to maintain my desired precision. Filing and grinding was tedious and trying. Nice Came saws are available for $250. Above so he's talking about cutting the actual lead, right? The lead came yep. that separates each little window light. 
Um, nice cane saws are available for 250 bucks above my current marginal indifference curve. Several mini chop saws were available online for 70 to $80, but the wait for delivery would interrupt my desire to complete the project. Lo and behold, the tool retailer, whose name shall not be uttered, had a $34 chop saw. <laughs> the specifications are truly impressive, or the copy editor worthy of a Pulitzer. The final thought? Though I am loath to admit I crossed the threshold of said store, it is the appropriate tool for the job and so far meets my needs. The die-cast base is at least as sturdy as the glass-filled polyester frame of the expensive saw I use in class and with a few modifications has become quite usable. It is, I'm almost done, guys. It is certainly underpowered, but adequate for cutting 3 inch zinc came. If I pursue this art, I will investigate a proxon or other alternatives at seven times the price. For now, this little chunk of plastic and aluminum has taken my glasswork to a new level. Perhaps there are virtues yet in the store we love to hate. What a great concluding line there. Yeah, but a, a very well-written response. But God, yeah. All of his praise really sounded like a tiny thousand cuts killing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's, it just did. But Asa, you made a yeah. good point about this store where... Uh, freight is often unloaded by the harbor. Um, yeah. Well, he, uh, and he makes had a common too, experience think, that a lot of people have, which is it depends on what you need the tool for. You know, that's the big question. So if you're cutting little tiny bits of uh, lead uh, came, they call it, that goes between the glass and leaded glass, um, you might the whatever they have there might be perfectly fine. Um, like he said, if if he did this again and again and again, um, like we do with a woodworking tool, you use it constantly. For I mean, I don't know how much lead work. he's going to be, you know, how many projects will he ever have that have leaded right. glass in them? If you were going to use it again and again, the tool might frustrate you and break down. But for a sort of one-off job like that, um, 34 bucks is an insane price. The thing I've heard people going to, um, the place where freight is sold by the harbor, <laughs> is... Uh, <laughs> Um, or the harbor where they load freight. I wonder if anyone's guessed what store we're talking about. I don't about know. Yet. Probably not. Um, <laughs> uh, if the thing that I hear a lot is, you know, the stuff is basically all Chinese import stuff. And um, what I've heard people say is that they can find things there they can't find anywhere else. And for some tools, it's perfect. I know Michael Fortune gets, he goes in there all the time up in Canada, I think, and he uh, gets clamps and things that he can't find online for example like i'm sure he wouldn't get his big giant yeah. woodworking clamps there but he gets these little edge clamps that he puts edge banding on they grab the sides of plywood mm -hmm. and they have a little center screw that pushes in and you can yeah, they're probably 99 cents for a really elaborate clamp and he can get a ton of them um all sorts of stuff i think it's sort of fun to go through a place like that yeah. that's just like a cornucopia of gizmos and gugaws and stuff to find things where you're like, oh, look at those little plastic toggles. I could use those to do whatever, yeah. you know? It's I like think. going to the dollar store, and you, you can always find dollar something. Dollar store for tools. For, for tools, yeah. yeah. There are, you can go in there and find things that are of uh, good quality. Mm -hmm. I, I have several items from there that actually are not only of good quality, but they are identical products to ones sold by woodworking retailers. Well, I mean, identical. Let's keep it really real now. What we've noticed, and I just saw this in a new crop of tools, I'm I'm not going to say what they are, but we got a whole crop of tools for a new tool test. Mm -hmm. They're all bench. Oh, you mean the they're all bench top. <laughs> they're all bench top uh, Things. tools Things. that do a, a, a same job. All of them do the same job. And there's there's four that are 
identical to each other with different brands and stuff yeah. on them. And then there's yeah. another three that the guts are completely identical and the top's identical, but That's someone's put a different case on them. Yeah. So there's seven that are made at two factories. Yeah. Um, and so it wouldn't surprise me at all to believe what you're saying. Well, this, not only are they made, they're the same brand. I mean, it's, I, they're the same product, but sold yeah. for twice as much through a woodworking retailer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's akin yeah. to uh, in New England. We have a there's a chain of furniture stores called uh, Bob's Discount Furniture, and one of the things that they market big time are mattresses. That it's their generic mattress, but the it's Bobopedic, right? And it's made at the same. <laughs> that's what he calls it's it. It's made at the same factory that you know whatever the Siemens Ultra Rest you know thing that no, the Posturepedics, right? That cost three times as much, yeah. but because they don't have the branding associated with it, they you know they charge you you know uh, I don't know. A third less, or something like that. So and there's usually outlines of chalk body, you know, chalk outlines yeah, but of that's, bodies on. You know, whatever. I mean, as <laughs> long as you why. get one that doesn't have bed bugs in it, you're good. <laughs> so you, so they I don't think ever. what we're saying is, go to this store. Let's call it Farber Great, and uh, and <laughs> check it out and wander around and see what you find. Now, I wouldn't buy a table saw. A table saw there, but I might be wrong about that too. You know, you may find one that. It's perfectly fine. I've heard, actually, that the ultimate bargain basement place yeah. to go is the dented and damaged sale at... <laughs> oh, uh, Grizzly? At, no, Harbor at, Freight. at Harbor Freight. Oh, um, really? There, we said it. Uh, oh! That, that you can get things... <laughs> They're not a sponsor, Asa, Someone was telling it. me that they saw a table saw for like 48 bucks in a parking <laughs> lot in California. That's awesome. It's insane. Yeah, so... That's if you really want to brag to your friends. If you're Raleigh Johnson and you just <laughs> want to add like eight more saws to your collection. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, the, interestingly That's amazing. enough, have you noticed, and I don't know if I'm wrong or right about this, but I feel like I've begun to notice they've been opening up a lot of uh, retail stores, brick and mortar stores. Oh, they've always had brick and mortar stores. But I, I had never, up until the last two years or so, I, I had never seen one ever. Really? And in the past couple of years, I've been seeing them popping they've, up. They've popped you know. up a lot more. There used to be only like a couple per state or whatever, as far as I could tell. But now they're, they're all, they seem to be all over the place. I see one like in my local small city, yeah. whereas I used to have to go down to New Haven or whatever. Yeah, there's one in Waterbury now. Yeah. Yep. Well, I guess we can say the name of the towns. Yeah, we live near Waterbury. Yeah. You and I do, at least. Lovely Waterbury. Yes. Not all me. right. Scary, um, scary berry, as I like to call scary. it. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's uh, dive into our questions. The first one uh, is straight up Matt's alley. This comes from Michael, who writes, I've been building Matt's monster workbench for the past few weeks, and I've glued up the top and attached the front apron. The holes for the vices are drilled, and all was going well. I finished flattening the top last night and realized that the apron is no longer square to the top. I believe my mistake was waiting until I had both the apron and the top glued up and then flattening. I noticed in the video that Matt flattens first and then glues on the apron. From what I can see, I have three options. One, leave it, but I'm thinking if I edge plane a board, it may throw out the squareness. Is that correct? Two, Not really. fix it on the bench. I'm thinking either trying to hand plane it square or with the help of a six-pack and a few buddies, muscle it across my little jointer. If I do fix it, what method would work? How will this impact the operation of the vice, if There's at all? There's your problem. Three, replace it. Somehow cut the bad boy off, get some new stock, and start over. Thanks for your thoughts. Uh, my so. first thought is that if he, he does number two, a <laughs> yeah. couple of buddies, and some beer, and a joiner, and a small joiner, please, please video that. I was going to say. And send us the video afterwards. <laughs> um, 
Uh, well, yeah, I w- what I would do personally is just stand the bench on edge and face plane that apron square to the top of the bench. Yep. And uh, what you could do is stand it up on edge, clamp it to the base so that it remains steady. And you could, the Asa suggested this earlier, and I would do this probably, is I would just at one end uh, use a square to transfer a line out straight across the end grain of the apron so you have a line to work to. And do you could do it at the other end as well. And I would probably draw use a combo square yep. to go down the long bottom edge of the apron. And that would give you a, a reference to mark. Connect a those refer- two lines. Yeah, to connect those two lines. It would yep. give you a reference mark to work to. And that really shouldn't take more than a, maybe 30 minutes, if that. Yep. Yeah. It really shouldn't take that long. Depends on how far it out, out it is. But back to his earlier point, how would this cause problems? When you're edge planing boards, yeah, they'd be a slightly bit cockeyed, but I think you could just get used to that. Where it's going to cause, yeah, where it would cause a problem is, the vice. Uh, yeah, how the vice operates. Well, it, well, because the vice jaw is going to come in parallel. You know, the vice screw is probably going to get mounted parallel to the top of the. You t- could you could make thing. the jaw sure such that it would close properly, but more importantly, when you say if you're dovetailing, yeah, and you clamp a board in there to dovetail it, your baseline all of a sudden won't be. Uh, may not be... It won't be squared, uh, parallel to the floor. Perpendicular to the... Uh, parallel to the floor. Yeah. Actually, that's something to think about because you want your boards to be perpendicular to the floor when they are clamped. Sure. And if you square this up to the top, you want to make sure that the apron is still perpendicular to the floor. Yeah. Michael, yeah. forget what these guys are saying. It's a whole lot of work um, for nothing because really all you need to do is break out a belt sander and you can take that thing down. Forget 30 minutes, 30 seconds. I will. Done. I guarantee you that with a belt sander, you <laughs> will screw it up royally and it'll be a big wavy mess. I will tell you this. If you have to go the route of not, if you can't fix it with a hand plane, what I would suggest doing, and I've done this before to a bench that I gave to a neighbor when I moved up to Connecticut, after, you know, before I moved up to Connecticut, Cut that apron off with a ta- on a table saw, sure, and then glue it back on. Sure, it, it'll depending on your table saw. It could be a chore. I, I, uh, that sounds like a big pain in the butt. I, it's it's not, not too bad because you're going to cut through the thin part of the bench. Right, you'll cut through and plane it. Just yes, if that doesn't work, I said Edward. Yeah. Please listen. So stupid. <laughs> But that's what I would try to square right. it up with a hand plane first. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, the next question, which is from Nick. And uh, Nick writes, Hi, guys. I'm looking at possibly buying a 50s or 60s era Delta Milwaukee 14-inch bandsaw, um, model number PM1827. My questions are, would it be a good first bandsaw? Are parts readily available? Would this machine produce quality resaw cuts if tuned properly? I know dust collection is non-existent. I was thinking I could put in a dust port maybe as well. Please add anything else that would be helpful. Thanks in advance. I never miss a podcast. Um, so, guys, um, I ended up uh, forwarding that question over to our own uh, machinery and power tool junkie, Raleigh Johnson. Who just wrote a book on band sauce for Taunton Press. Let's just, let's just hope that Raleigh this time Googled the model before answering the question. <laughs> he did. <Yeah>. So he <laughs> responds, Nick. The Delta PM1827, also referred to as a 28380, is a great little bandsaw. 
Parts are still available, and upgrades like urethane tires or roller guides are easy to retrofit and readily available. I think the standard Delta riser block kit will even work with it. If yours is the two-speed model, you can even cut non-ferrous metals and plastics with the slower speed setting. Now here's what I would do with the saw. First, replace the tires if they're grooved, cracked, or rock hard. Next, put a bigger motor on it. I believe it has a half-horse motor from the factory. If you plan to resaw or rip heavier lumber, um, and also add a paddle switch mounted on the column for easy access. Now, regarding the heavier motor guys, we were kind of, uh, you know, undecided on this. You know, Raleigh thinks, yeah, go ahead and spring for a bigger motor. But you guys were kind of, we were yeah. in our meeting, we're like, nah, it's probably fine. We sort you know? of thought, try the motor that it has for a while. Right. And yeah. if that becomes a problem, like he said, it's going to become a problem on the biggest resaw cuts. That's when you are cutting, making the, using well, more of the blade. It I, could possibly be a problem, but... Yeah, Probably well, not I would, with a sharp blade. I mean, I would first say don't get the riser block unless you absolutely need it, you know, because most of the resawing you're going to do isn't going to be boards between 6 and 12 inches tall. It's, you know, you just don't need to resaw. Depends if he needs it or not. It depends what, he, yeah. Yeah, what are you using it for. And if you don't get a, if you don't have the riser block in there and you're not resawing 12-inch boards all the time, you probably don't need a bigger motor mm-hmm. than a half inch. Yeah. I, I mean, a half I disagree power. with Matt a little bit on the riser block. I I think there is a there are a lot of times when I uh, cut stuff, resaw stuff over six inches, um, and so you know I, we could go either way on that one. But uh, but try the motor. We agree on try the motor that yeah. it has. Yeah. yeah. So he goes on. He says a set of new guide blocks. I like the cool block phenolic. Will round out the upgrade and give you a dynamite saw. Um, the tires, guide blocks, and paddle switch will set you back about ninety bucks. Um, and used 1725 RPM, one-and-a-half horse motors are easy to find used and cheap. A segmented belt and pulleys are also relatively inexpensive upgrades you could consider. Um, if now, you need pulleys. I don't know why he's mentioning well, pulleys. Be, why, oh, what he means is to buy machined pulleys aftermarket because the original pulleys may not be may machined. Not, okay. Right. They may only be cast, in which case they could be wonky. Right. So now he's got an interesting tip for dust collection because, right, a lot of these older saws, they didn't have dust ports and they, they just weren't outfitted for dust collection. So um, his idea for that was uh, for dust collection, buy an old camera tripod at a garage sale, mount a length of uh, shop vac hose to the camera mount, and position the contraption so the hose end is directly under the lower guides. The camera mount makes it easy to tilt the hose up towards the guides. It works great and is easy to move out of the way for blade changes. And best of all, it's cheap. Um, so sounds, I thought that was kind of cool. really interesting. And what about a blade, too? He's going to need a blade. Yeah, well, you're going to... The, the blade that we generally recommend here, some people like to use an array of blades, and that's mm-hmm. perfectly fine. But most of us here are using these sort of more of a coarse blade. It'll do everything, like a 3-8-inch front-to-back blade that's about three teeth per inch, which is pretty coarse. That'll do all kinds of curves, everything but the tightest curves, and it'll do big, tall resaw cuts. You want a lot of, you want fewer teeth for big resaw cuts because there's bigger gullets uh, between the teeth, and it can clear more chips, and it won't, the chips won't get packed as it's cutting, which leads to problems like blade drift. But um, yeah, definitely uh, keep it simple on the blade. We would say, and yeah. another thing that. Uh, we've seen in the past is not only putting a dust collection port up by the blade, and it's going to, by the way, I think we all agree, dust collection is going to be so-so on these old bandsaws at best. At best. Yeah. But also you can put one down in the lower corner 
of the um, saw the cabinet, wheel. yeah, diagonally opposite of where the blade is, um, you can put a you can cut a little port in there and then have a Y junction off your dust hose with one that goes up to the under the blade to your camera tripod, <laughs> and the other one that goes to the ca- down to I the cabinet. I think um, we did a series of videos on bandsaws with Michael Fortune about three years ago, and yeah. I think he covered um, yes, you know, he does yeah. dust ports and all that stuff. So if you look yep. on the website, you should be able to find it. Um, all right. Well, so it's a sweet saw. I think what Raleigh's saying is, um, yeah, that those saws are really nice. We still have one in the shop that's probably identical. I think it was probably made in the seventies, yeah, but it's, it's identical. Th- that standard fourteen-inch bandsaw, cast iron body frame, which is basically what I bought n- off of you, man. For decades, yeah. sharp blade, everybody. If you have sharp, coarse blades on your bandsaw. You don't need as much power. The blade won't drift. It's like keep a fresh blade on your bandsaw, and a lot of these so-called problems go away. All right. Uh, well, I say we head into our first segment of the day, and that's going to be all-time favorite tool of all time for this week. And um, I say we just go in alphabetical order. Uh, I don't. All right. It's always me first. You want me to go first, Asa? Yeah, let's change it up. You were supposed to say, no, no, all right, I'll go ahead. Partly because um, my new tool isn't all that awesome. No, all right. it's great. So, uh, as you everybody knows, I've been uh, outfitting my basement shop, and, um, you know, I finally got my, my table saw is set up. I built my side feed router table, you know, ding-dong over there, um, and I'm using it. It's it's great, and I, I finally had to start outfitting it with, you know, all the assorted jigs and things that you need for your table saw. So the first thing I did was um, not one, but two crosscut sleds. So crosscut sleds, they're always useful, right? But we have one in the final working shop, and it's this big, it's very well built, but it's this big 50-pound monster. It's like four by three feet. It's ridiculous. And I hate lifting that thing up. So I built a decent-sized one. It's I think mine was like... 30, maybe a little bit more than that, 30 inches long. Maybe it was three feet long, I think, by like two feet. Um, and it's a little heavy, right? And then I built Junior. And Junior is only like 20 inches long, you know, by like 18 deep. And so I've got, you know, I've got Junior and Senior. And it's an, it's awesome because you, yeah. I, I usually just use the little one. I have, I have s- several small crosscut sleds for my saw, yeah. and that's what I use the most. They're, you know, usually, you, how often do you really need to crosscut something that's gigantic? Not very often. Yeah. Do you so. give your sleds names like Ed does? Like, no. come here, Junior. I'm not a loser. <laughs> nice job. <laughs> Good job, buddy. Yeah. Hey, buddy. Come on, little buddy. No. That's that's pe- uh, peculiar to Ed. Yeah. Um, do you use, uh, does your smaller crosscut sled often take the place of your miter gauge? Uh, well, it used to a lot, but now I have a nice miter gauge, yeah. so I do use my miter gauge quite a bit, and more than actually I thought I was going to because of how it's it's a good miter gauge. Yeah, if it's super accurate. And it's very, you know, I set it to 90 degrees and leave it, you know, so yeah. it's not, you know, not a big deal. If anybody out there listening to this podcast has one of those angle right miter gauges, please send me an email at epernick, P-I-R-N-I-K, at taunton.com, because I've been trying to find one of these on eBay. For like the past two years, anybody who's familiar with these knows they're, they basically only have two settings. Yeah. It, it's got the plate has two holes drilled into it, one for 45 degrees, well, one for 90. Two for 45. Or two, you're right, two for 45, and one, one for 90. direction. Yeah. And one for 90, and then it's got a pin that registers and it, you screw it into place. And it's super just, precise. Super precise. It just does its job. And they don't make them anymore. 
Well, it's so great. This is interesting because uh, a couple of maybe a month or two ago, uh, a dude, a uh, listener, I should say, right? Yeah. Or, a dude. E- emailed me. Dude. Some, some dude. Some, some dude. dude. Uh, nice. And he said that, he said that it was our time and that he would like to get a pizza. No. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Spicoli? Yes. All right. All right. Uh, <laughs> He said, you know, he was like, hey, you know, do you have any more pictures of that? Because we talked about that angle gauge. Yeah, we've talked about it before, angle right. A long time ago on the podcast, yeah, I said Mr. it was my Hand. favorite tool. And uh, he asked me for more photographs of it because he was going to make one. Yeah, did he make it? I don't know. A machinist I, could yeah, make this yeah, relatively very easily. easily yeah. Yeah. When I, I emailed him and I said, here's some more pictures of it. I said, you know, if you're going to make these and you wouldn't mind making a run of them, I know several people that yeah. would be interested in buying one, but he never emailed me back. He might, I bet you a machinist would be listening and then you to were this like, episode. And then you were like, dude. Dude. You know? Yeah. What would a machinist charge you to make something like that? He said, you were a machinist once. Depends That's, on how many you're making. Just one. So it's going to be pricier. A couple hundred bucks. Probably. Oh, really? That yeah. Much? Yeah, for sure. It's just like asking a furniture maker to make you something. It's the same. I mean, it's going to take them a couple hours probably by the time it's all said and done because yeah. you... You'd start with stock, and you'd have to surface grind some of the surfaces to get them to be really accurate, like the miter bar and mm-hmm. um, the yeah, just and then the and and the little fence part, which yeah. has to be perfect ninety. And then you're uh, squaring, and then you have to drill those holes super yeah. precisely, and that's where the person would spend a lot of time nailing that. This the the person making a run of these would do it on a CNC or an NC machine or something, and they would knock those holes out, a whole batch of those yeah. holes. They'd dial it in, do make sure test it, make sure it was good, and then they'd knock out 500 of them. But if you're making just one, everything's a pain mm-hmm. in the butt. Yeah. Well, uh, who's going next? I'll go next. Uh, my favorite tool of all time this week would be a new, fairly new uh, butt chisel that I bought from uh, Veritas. It's one of the uh, butt chisels with the PMV dash. I'm sorry, what is it? A butt chisel. It's a butt chisel. A butt chisel. <laughs> what? Some sort of strange redneck tool. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's how you get the chewing tobacco can out of your back pocket when you chew leave it back for too long. Oh, tobacco yeah. can. That's you good. Have to use a butt chisel. You gotta use one of them butt chisels. <laughs> yeah. It's better than where I was gonna go with it. Oh, am I? Am I? You done learned me, Matt. Am I speaking in a particularly country <laughs> no, way no, no, no. It's just <laughs> it's an awesome name for a tool. So you got that new steel, that PMV eleven stuff. I did. Have you tried to sharpen it and use it and everything? Oh, I don't use my tools. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have you noticed a difference? Well, one thing I have noticed that's different about it, uh, when you're flattening the back and, like, polishing the back. Yeah, because it comes flat. They swear it comes flat already. It's really flat, yeah. yeah. But it's not it, – It the grind is rougher. Yeah. And, but I, I recall reading when I was testing their, uh, their new um, – Shooting board plane. I remember reading about the blade, which is also a PMV eleven. It said, you know, don't worry about getting the back super polished. And they said it's going to work fine even if it's not. And but I was still polishing the back of this chisel, and the grit that or the slurry you create is different than the slurry from say like a, a O one tool steel. Huh. And it's more like it's almost like there's you can't even see the grit coming off. It's so fine and so part such small particles, I guess. Yeah, it's a microscopic powder, basically. Yeah, it's that's like the put powder together. comes off. That's what the t- steel is made of. Yeah, right. It's made of an atomized, super microscopic powder that's then fused together. Yeah, it's a powdered metal. Yeah, PM. Yeah. Uh, yep. But uh, that's I noticed that was different. Um, but otherwise, it's. 
you know, it gets really sharp, just like tool steel does or A2 does. And uh, it's great. I like it. I mean, more importantly, what I like about this chisel is that the handle fits my hand very well. It's short. It's about an inch and a half wide, I think, is the size I got. Little which, hands for little baby furniture. Yeah, it's not, and and I've always wanted a short, wide chisel like that, and I could never find an old one uh, at a at a you know a good flea market or whatever. Did you get like the toasted maple on the handle? It's like a kind of a caramel um, color. It is. I don't know what it's made from, but it I is. I think like, they have like they bought some of that toasted wood where it imparts like a caramely color all the way through oh, the maple it could be it's some That's kind of really dark pretty wood. yeah i but i really like it it's a very comfortable chisel to hold and uh, it's got like a shorter rounder handle that yep. fits in your palm yeah the handle when i hold it i don't think the handle sticks out past my palm at all right yeah that's cool very well shaped and very comfy after the cool things you guys talk about mine seems a little mundane but i would say it gets used okay it's probably a tie with ed i would say it gets used uh, with Ed's crosscut sleds, it gets mm. used a ton. Every time I turn on my power tools, and I don't, and I hope I haven't talked about this before, but I just bought a couple more from Rock. Okay, so the next question <laughs> comes from yeah. Cricket, and <laughs> so it's uh, it's yeah. Go ahead, have have your fun. Um, it's this dust right system from Rockler. I already have the dust right system. Um, which has a bunch of components, but I bought a couple more of their little four inch ports. So basically. This whole system from Rockler is awesome because, like, let's say you have, like, a two-horse or one-and-a-half-horse dust collector, and you keep it permanently attached to two machines. This is what I would do. I would keep it permanently attached to, let's say, your planer and your table saw, two of the biggest chip producers. Position those close together. Keep it permanently attached there with a couple blast gates. But then you also want to attach it to other things in your shop, like your bandsaw, chop saw, if you have a downdraft table for sanding or whatever. The, what this Dustrite system has is this, like, 25-foot hose that is a weird slinky design that, it, like, collapses down to, like, six feet. So it just lies on the floor and doesn't take much space. But if you need to really pull it all the way across the shop, it'll go. And they also make this little uh, handle. So when you connect it to various machines, it's got a built-in handle on the on, on the, the end, end of it. Yeah. Yep. And then you can buy these little rubberized four-inch ports that go on all your machines, and they uh, hose clamp on. And it's just like plug-and-play onto all your machines really fast with this little convenient handle and this collapsible hose. It's an awesome system, i got to say. And I just got a couple more ports and attached it to some more stuff, and I love it. Oh, also they sell like a floor sweep for it, too, which is basically a three-foot tube with a floor sweep attachment. Ooh, I like that. And your little handle goes on at the top. And you got a and vacuum. Now, and now you have a floor sweep vacuum I that you don't have idea. to bend over for. And, it's brilliant. And it has, and it's coming off your four-inch yeah, hose dust collector, right. which is great uh, until you pick up a bunch of nuts and bolts and shoot them through your impeller. Right. But wait. There's, There's more. more. <laughs> <laughs> it slices. It dices. It juliennes. <laughs> it does, yeah. Hi, Billy Mays here for <laughs> Rockler's Dust Rights. Right. Isn't Billy Mays, he's the one that died, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hold on. It's a downer. I know. Moment of silence Moment of for silence. Billy Mays. He'll be missed. All right. Um, so next question came in from Cricket, and Cricket wrote, I recently went to use my Stanley Sweetheart low-angle jack plane and found that the front cherry knob that loosens the throat adjuster was stripped from the threaded post. Have you had this happen? And if so, can I just epoxy this back on? Now, um, before you guys answer, maybe we could discuss these questions earlier, and I just want to say I had something similar 
Although my plane isn't exactly like yours, but I had something wait. similar happen. I think we need to do a podcast where yeah. we just answer everyone's questions with a yes or a no, and it'd be like three minutes long. <laughs> and the answer is yes. Yes, um, yes, you can. Let's move on, Ed. Moving the, on. Uh, the, you had something uh, similar. Yes, and the whole problem is that y- you can't y- you can't tighten that knob. You don't over tighten that knob because that's what ends up causing all the stripping and whatnot. It doesn't take much to tighten that knob and tighten the throat adjustment. Uh, so just a little bit of a tink, and you're done. Don't sit there and wrench it into place. Yeah. So now, what do you think? Well, there's a wooden part to the knob, and that attaches to a brass or steel part of the of the uh, contraption of the mechanism. And the steel part has threads that go down into the plane. Those are metal on metal, you know, uh, a device that that locks the front adjuster and it's the it's the front of the uh, sole, right? Moving back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, it lets you adjust the throat opening. That part where the metal threads go into the metal body of the plane is fine. Where people sometimes have problems is up off that metal part, there's also threads that go up into the wood. There's also a little screw that goes up into the wood. And like Ed said, if you crank on that wooden knob, you can strip out the wooden threads and the wooden part will just spin. So... He's right. Once you've done that, short of buying another knob from the manufacturer, you could stick some two-part epoxy up in there, and it should hold it fine. And then, like Ed said, don't crank on it. Done. Done. Bam. Done and done. Boom. Uh, Next question comes from our old friend Manuel down in Mexico. Uh, I'm building a massive mahogany front door. I know that the best way to cut pieces to length is on the table saw, using a cross-cut sled and stops for repeatability, but when it comes to long pieces, such as the styles, which are 7 feet long, what's the best way? I know radial arm saws and miter saws are not as accurate as the method I described, and they'll hardly produce square ends. What to do? I'll be using some lap joints. What's the best manner to fine-tune those? I'll cut them on the table saw using a dado set, and I was thinking on adjusting them with a shoulder plane, but I'm afraid it will cause some tear-out as the plane exits the cut since it's going across the grain. Suggestions? There are many, Manuel. (laughs) Gentlemen? Well, the first thing uh, I thought, not the first thing I thought about, something I thought about that Manuel should think about first is the joinery he proposes to use because he says this is a front door, which is going to be the outside of his house. A lot of use. A lot of use, and will be exposed to the elements uh, in beautiful Mexico where he lives, right? Yeah, a lot of snow, you know, a lot of hail. Well, (laughs) some parts of Mexico get snow. Yeah, I guess up in the the mountains, I suppose. He lives in Mexico City, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyways, better than lap joints would be traditional mortise and tenon joinery, uh, which probably really is what you should use. Uh, because the joint will be hidden, you know, it'll be covered, so to speak, and it'll have a better chance of lasting in the uh, elements. More mechanically sound. More mechanically sound as well and for a front door, I think, which will take up, there'll be a lot of weight on that far side, on the latch slot, on the latch side, wanting to uh, uh, wrench it. Into Would you a, pin them too? What do you think? Uh, Is that overkill? It doesn't hurt, but I don't think you uh, need it. Probably not, because uh, on a door you're going to have some pretty wide rails, and don't, that'll have a lot of shoulders. Don't listen to Matt; he doesn't know what he's talking. Also, about. <laughs> Matt's advocating mortise and tenon because you won't see it on the outside like a lap joint you'd see on the You'll outside. See that joint, yeah. and you'd see pins. So, you know, unless but you want a real traditional. Uh, I was advocating a sorry, advocating a mortise and tenon because the glue lines. Right are encased. Yeah, and yeah right. They're right. not exposed to That's the right. to the elements. Oh, okay. Not because you would see the joint, but right. because you would 
hide the glue lines of the joint, and mm. so that they'd have a better, you know, longer, better chance of standing up for a long time. Then, after you get that, what you want to do is make the door with the r- styles too long, so they have what are normally called horns. And after you glue it up, you have like an inch or two of horn sticking out proud of the of the rails, yep. and cut those off with a handsaw, and then plane them down. And now you don't have to cross cut them to. Why would you make it with the horns on it? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, well, the the primary reason is is that when you mortise uh, a rail, a style rather, normally you could on a small door for a cabinet say you're probably within a quarter inch of the ingrain eventually. And if you cut it to length and then mortise it, when you're assembling it and pulling it apart, or even when you're morticing it, there's a chance that you can break out that Crack ingrain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you leave an extra two inches on it, all of a sudden, you know, the ingrain's not weak anymore. You can mortise it, take it apart, put it back together, et cetera, without having to worry about breaking out that the ingrain on the mortise. So in this case, I think it would just, I would, you probably are going to have like at least a half inch haunch at the top, I would guess. Yeah. So you probably don't have to worry about breaking out the ingrain, but it does solve his also solves his problem of how do I cross cut these accurately? You don't. You glue it all together, cut it off with a hand saw, and then hand. But plane still, it. I mean, if he's using a, a miter saw with some auxiliary fences to prevent tear out and whatnot, and you yeah, know, you could uh, do it with a miter saw. Absolutely, I don't see why it wouldn't be. Yeah, you know, he's he's he might have heard us maybe be tough on radial arm saws and miter saws, but the truth is, um, you can get really good cuts from those. And uh, like Ed's saying, on your chop saw, you can do really long stock and make really accurate cuts. If you just put you double stick tape down the little quarter inch MDF onto the bed of the miter saw and onto the fence, you'll get zero tear out too. So use a stop block on your on the on the extension wing you on your could. miter saw. Yeah, you could. Yep. Yep. Yeah, totally. I, I have a radial alarm saw and it's set up for ninety degree cuts and it makes ninety degree cuts. Yep. And yep. I have if you get the right type of blade, which would be a blade with a negative hook. I don't really get tear out yep. on my stock either. And I don't have zero clearance. I use a Perfect neutral zero hook. Clearance. And a lot of uh, <laughs> and a lot of uh, teeth. A cross cutting blade. Yes, I have a cross cutting blade. It's like yep. uh, probably seventy or eighty teeth. Another cool yeah. tip for using your chop saw is to make the cut, leave the blade down and buried in the saw, and let it come to a stop before you pull it back up, so you don't get all those little scratches on the way back up. It's another good tip. All right. Uh, so here's, uh, I'm going to just proceed through a couple more questions before we go into the Patrick Edwards segment. Um, so let's keep going. This one came in from Bill, and I'm going to paraphrase uh, Bill's question because it was rather lengthy. So he writes uh, that he just took delivery of a brand new Unis- Delta Unisaw, and after removing the Cosmoline used to protect the metal during shipping and storage, the Cosmoline's like a, a greasy oil, it's kind of clear, um, he used WD-40 Specialist White Lithium Grease uh, to get rid of the cosmoline. I don't know how that worked, but uh, and everything came off easily. So after he cleaned everything off, he coated the table with paste wax. He let it dry a bit and buffed it off. This is, again, he's trying to protect from rust here. But he immediately found inconsistencies in the look of the top and smudges that wouldn't come out. He says it looks terrible. He even tried rust-free rust and stain remover, but that led to even more splotchiness. How can he get this back to the original look? I ask you, gentlemen, please help Bill. Well, in the uh, strip that, yeah, you can strip. Wax is a is not a good uh, moisture blocker, and uh, you can strip it off with mineral spirits, right? Yeah, mineral spirits. Um, uh, and so we actually tested rust preventers a while back, and we found that 
The best stuff was some synthetic. There are various synthetics, mostly sold for the auto industry or through auto suppliers. The one that won our test is like five or six bucks on Amazon for an 11-ounce bottle. It's called CRC Industrial 3-36. So CRC, just those initials, Industrial 3-36, and uh, you can find it all over the place. It's, were, a, it's a very catchy name. It is. <laughs> I, I love their jingle, too. Their jingle is fantastic. It's what happens CRC when you let engineers name their own products. <laughs> Um, so that one was was uh, really great, and it's really inexpensive, and uh, it worked better. You know, there's lots of other products sold in woodworking catalogs, but we actually found that the stuff that wasn't in woodworking catalogs did the best. And it's not, it doesn't discolor the wood. It's not uh, kind of too gunky on your hands. Um, we did rule some out that kept rust off, but also were unpleasant to work with. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you're, you're, especially if you're putting this on a hand tool. Yeah. Uh, you don't want it to be tacky or excessively slippery, et cetera. Right. The best ones I recall, the best ones felt like there was nothing on there at all. Yep. Yeah, they felt completely normal. Well, we got one more. One more question. This one comes from Steve, and Steve writes, Due to a job transfer, I've recently moved from Virginia across the pond to Deutschland. Uh, for both power and space reasons, I decided to sell all of my big power tools before the move and plan on replacing some of them now that I know I have the space in our new house. I'll be getting a large bandsaw, and I think I'll finally get around to buying a lathe. My question, here in Europe, and southwest Germany specifically, if that matters, <laughs> what brands should I be looking at, and where should I look to buy them? Well, in southwest Germany, I know nothing. <laughs> Holzwerken Überflagen? <laughs> now, if I was in Bavaria, <laughs> yeah, I was. yeah, duh. <laughs> no, I actually, are. I think our advice, well, one, we can't recommend brands, because A, we don't know the brands over there, but two, we don't recommend things by brand anyways yeah we don't that's a good point we don't really make blanket statements about brands because it's not fair tools vary within a brand so when and when we do tool tests those are some of the most scrutinized yeah it's super scrutinized obviously by everybody Uh, there's readers who are angry they didn't they don't own the best overall and our our favorite pick and then there's manufacturers that are clearly have a lot at stake and this stuff is you know we spend more time on tool reviews than anything and we're very specific about what we say, and we try not to speak. We certainly wouldn't make a broad blanket statement about some certain manufacturer. We really go tool by tool as it performed in our shop. Plus, but we have no yeah. problem throwing an entire retail chain <laughs> <laughs> off <laughs> the, the dock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. I, I don't know if I was a part of that, uh, throwing them off the docks. Actually, we had some positive remarks about them. Yes, yeah. we have. Um, um, we, so what what they're trying to say in a long-winded manner is that we really can't don't but we do have advice for them though. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. And one the first bit of advice is is uh well my first bit of advice is if you're in Germany and you're in Europe you didn't list this but get yourself a table saw, one that you can ship back because you will have far easier access to a true sliding table saw mm-hmm. in Europe than you do in the United States. But uh try to find a local woodworking guild where you can meet people, hopefully you're fluent in German, and can get advice from locals. A lot, about, of, a lot of Germans will speak English for sure. Probably, yep. yep. Um, and uh, You'll fit in better if you wear lederhosen. Try to see if you can use their tools first. You know, Go see what they have in their shop. Uh, go to local tool retailers if they have them and yeah. look at them in person. Uh, all the things you would do here in the United States. 
You know, I guess. Maybe show up in one of those alpine hats and, and uh, some and some leather shorts. Ricola. <laughs> That's not <laughs> true. I know, I know, I know. It's um, close enough, though. <laughs> Yeah, the other thing is the other thing is to get hooked into. You know, they'll have their own version uh, of Amazon and various tool, not just Amazon's tools thing, but various woodworking forums online that are uh, from Germany. Yeah, and so get plugged into the local economy, local woodworking community, and you'll start finding out what machines and tools really perform. Yeah, it's Amazon.de. Yeah, that would be for Deutsch. All right. Yep. Well, listen, guys. Last time we were on the uh, on the podcast, we played part one of Asa's interview with uh, Cartouche Award winner Patrick Edwards. Now it's time for part two. Uh, in this uh, section, you guys go uh, deep dish into Chevrolets and why I don't Donkeys. know what what Chevrolets have to do with woodworking. <laughs> but um, actually, drunk uncle, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, <laughs> or Cliff Clavin. It's, uh, you know, the Romans use Chevrolets to cut their uh, inlay. It's it, yeah, he uses a special tool from marquetry called a Chevrolet. And we also talk about the new type of hide glue that he developed in cells, which is really interesting stuff. Old brown glue. I love the name old brown glue. It reminds me of old gray mare. Yeah. <laughs> Who was used to produce the old brown glue. <laughs> and if you save your old brown glue too long, she won't be what she used to be either, right. just like the song. Yeah. Well, shall we run it? Here we go. This is Asa with Patrick Edwards. And drug out by oxes and made into a piece of furniture with sweat and blood. And uh, that should be respected. By the way, everybody, if you'd like to uh, take classes with Patrick, he has a wonderful school here. You'll see that. It's called the American School of French Marketry here in San Diego. You'll have a great time out here in sunny SoCal. And we, uh, we took some pictures of the school area. It's bright, and it's got lots of natural light. It's just a beautiful place to be. And um, also on your website, you have plans for the Chevalet as well that people can purchase if they want to build their own. I wanted to introduce... And Pierre understood this. Um, he mentioned me in volume two of his book as a way of transmission of the process of French marquetry from one continent to another. I wanted to introduce the tool itself. I, I find, as a woodworker and a tool collector, that I own just about every tool that a guy could own. But, That's true. I can vouch for that. But I don't see a lot of marquetry tools, French Chevrolets in America, mm-hmm. And I thought, why not? What's the point? Well, it was kind of kept secret. And so I thought, if I introduce this tool to American woodworkers, they won't know what to do with it. But if I introduce the French method without the tool, it won't work. Mm -hmm. So I need to do a dual track. I need to introduce the tool and the way of using it. And the metaphor is like um, playing a musical instrument. If you stumbled upon a violin in a thrift store and you never saw one played and you never knew how to use it, you wouldn't know how to tune it, you wouldn't know how to hold it, you wouldn't know what to do with it. But if you took some lessons and somebody told you how to do that, you could actually enjoy it. So my idea was to uh, show people how to use the tool and tune it and use it properly and and how to make it. And, and uh, now um, I've sold um, kits for these tools that people have built uh, some uh, four or five dozen metal, of them. There's some metal parts and stuff <clears throat> like that. There's some special hardware, and yep. the tool itself, I have blueprints. But also, um, there's uh, spontaneously uh, a group of students of mine who have now 
second and third generation produce tools. And now we find in North America that the tool is not at all uncommon. It's, it's, it's fairly well known. And it's something that people can build in their shop without too much trouble? They should uh, build their own because it's a custom tool. But um, Oh, it's kind of sized to your body. It's, fits, it's like a bicycle. It has to fit your body. And mm-hmm. if you're, it's your sitting height. Yeah. So when you're sitting down, you want the blade to be about at the throat level. Right. And um, so it depends on your, your actual upper body size. If it comes loose, it's right there. It could sever your jugular. That's no, where you want no, it. No, and it doesn't hit you in the chin. That's all silly. Uh, I know. I'm it's just, just a question <laughs> of, of ergometrics. Because the tool is a full-body tool, you're actively using it with every part of your body during, right. during the work. And if you're not comfortable, you won't do it. So you're not going to have any fatalities? Uh, well, you could drop it on your foot. Then you'd, right, that's about the worst that could happen. Yeah. Or you could fall off the seat. Right. <laughs> if, you, if you do marketry It drunk. does not have a seat belt, and you don't wear a helmet, so I guess you could get in trouble. Right. Um, so um, what, what are the – let's get technical for a second and talk about what's the upside to using the Chevrolet. I, I, I watched <clears> you use it today. I see <throat> that the blade is horizontal. There's a sort of a, a, a clamp that holds your packet uh, vertical, like you said, and the blade is horizontal. But what? And then you actually drive the saw back and forward with your right. hand. Um, what are the technical benefits of of using the tool? Well, um, first of all, you can have a clear vision of where the blade is because the blade's right in front of your face. And on a, uh, a jigsaw or a Hagner overhead saw, some scroll kind of saw, scroll you saw, yeah, the, you can't put your face directly in line with the blade because the machine is there. Um, you have the advantage of the sawdust falling away instead of resting on the surface. Um, you have the advantage of the foot clamp, which frees up your left hand for manipulating the packet. The blade cuts on the push stroke, and it uses a very fine blade, a 2 aught blade or finer. We can use an 8 aught blade, actually, uh, if you want to. And the blade has a constant tension throughout the stroke because it's held under the constant tension. It's not changing tension. Mm-hmm. And... Um, since you're cutting on the push stroke, the packet is designed to be made with a, a cut-out a piece at the back of scrap wood to prevent the tear-out. And um, uh, basically, you're sitting down so you're comfortable. Your feet are resting on the pedals, and you're free to cut hours and hours and hours at a time. And I quite often will find myself at uh, 11.30 or 12 o'clock at night when I'm in a project cutting, and I think, well, I'll just do one or two more pieces, and I look up later, and it's 1.30. What's your favorite music when you're on the Chevrolet? I go between classic rock, uh, heavy blues, and classical quartet music. That sounds like quite a range. One or the other. Sometimes you kind of feel like hardcore and rock and roll, and sometimes you just want to mellow out. Well, I, I like um, Beethoven. I, like, I, played, I played in the quartet at college, and I, I enjoy chamber music. Um, and, and Brahms and, and that kind of stuff. Wow. but Very specific. But basically, I'm, I grew up in the 60s, and so I, I listened mm-hmm. to Cream and Led Zeppelin and, and Pink Floyd a lot. That sounds good. I was just kidding around, but you, got, you guys out there got a very serious answer. And some good place. Some good <laughs> Music <laughs> is uh, as important as coffee. It's, uh, it, you have some good places that everyone can look on Spotify and whatever it is that they use. Um, so what are the downsides of the Chevrolet? Um, uh, it seems like most folks use slightly thicker veneers on there. Is there a reason for that? Um, it, you're sawing the wood, uh, the veneer, and so it works really well with thicker material. Mm-hmm. You can cut up to a half an inch thick. I do a lot of fret work sometimes with the tool, which is easy to do. 
Um, but your saw and the veneer on a scroll saw as well. So what's the difference? The control, the ability, the difference between pushing the material to the blade or pushing the blade to the material is a very significant difference. Obviously, the blade doesn't weigh anything at all, and the material is a lot. So manipulating the blade to the material gives you infinitely more control of the blade. So you actually, you're moving the blade around as you cut. Yeah, and the material is just resting there. If you're using a jigsaw, scroll saw, you're pushing a big piece of material against a blade, mm -hmm. and you don't have the ability to, to finesse it, to control it. Can you cut thinner veneers on a scroll saw? Sure. In a packet... Then, then you can on a... I mean, is there a disadvantage to the Chevrolet versus the scroll saw? The biggest disadvantage to the Chevrolet is it takes up four square feet of floor space, and mm -hmm. it's not easy to move around. Right. What about speed? I can cut just as fast. Um, what about like a hobbyist? You know, someone just starting out. Uh, well, I think the different that you, you have to get to the materials. Yeah. Most, most people that start out today have commercial veneers, which are quite thin. Super thin. What is the th how many thousands are those? I, I deal in millimeters. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> so sawn veneers are 1.5 to 2 millimeters thick. Is that and, about a sixteenth of an inch or so? Yes, mm -hmm. and and slice. People should just think in millimeters and not try and translate. Okay, Honestly, everybody. I'm, I'm sorry about that. Get but, out your uh, conversion charts. The reason is because old guys like me can't see anything smaller than a millimeter, so it doesn't make any sense to talk about a sixty-fourth or a thousandth. Anyway, that said, um, <clears throat> slice veneer up until 1995 was 0.9 millimeters, 28 to the inch. Yep. And then subsequently have gone to 0.6 and 0.3 and even, even Which is finer. more like 1 40th of an inch. Yeah, 40th to a 60th, and it becomes yeah. paper thin. I do not use that thin veneers. I don't, I don't see the uh, point. Can you put those, is, can you put those, what I'm trying to get at is, does a scroll saw handle those super thin veneers better, or no, is it about I, the same? I, I think it's worse because you can't control the pressure or speed. Okay. Uh, manually driving the blade, you can control the pressure and speed, and you, your brain, your computer, will adjust according to the sound of the cutting, and and you can adjust the force and stop and control it very easily. If a hobbyist was going to get into marketry for the very first time, um, what would you suggest that they do just to see if they like the process at all before they make build a Chevrolet and make a big investment? Well, the... Um, there's two parts to the French process. One is the tool itself, the cutting tool, the Chevrolet. But independent of that, marquetry in France is built face down on stretched paper on an assembly board, which is unique to the French. And I find that most people that try to build marquetry from England or Germany or Holland or America, they work from the front and they use tape to hold everything together and it gets very complicated and messy. And so by using stretched paper and hot protein glues to glue the pieces of wood down to the paper face down, you can work from the back, and everything is held in place by one layer of paper, which makes it easy to control. So that whole assembly board process is independently important of the cutting tool. Would you say that... So you wouldn't necessarily be uh, opposed to somebody... Um Learning on a scroll saw first, necessarily. No, I, you... I would start out with a handheld fret saw and then uh -huh. go to a scroll saw because it's an investment. But a fret saw you can buy for ten bucks. And, and then with a fret saw, you'd make one of those little bird's bird mouth, mouth, yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bird's mouth thing, yeah. which is like a little 
V-groove that gives you access for the blade, but it That's still right. reaches around the material and supports the bottom of the and material. E even more simple than that is a razor blade or, or X-Acto knife and, and these thin veneers because you can cut them out like paper. Oh, I see. All right, good. Just to see if they like it. Or, sure. better yet, I know what they should do. Hmm. They should come take a class with you. Well, uh, that's a good question. That raises a question because people determine that they're not qualified to take this class. And I have the most success with people who don't know anything about woodworking who come and take this class because they're starting fresh. I have very a lot of difficulty with woodworkers who bring their own agenda to the class and right. say, this is not the way I do it. I don't like the way this is. This is not right. I want people that start out fresh and get excited with this process because it's an exciting process. Well, the Chevalet uh, is not the only vintage tool that you really love and prefer. Yeah. Uh, Patrick also, um, I don't know why I'm speaking about you in the third person, but uh, uh, Patrick also really prefers animal glues, hide glue specifically most often. Can you <clears throat> just give them... A brief synopsis of the benefits of using animal glues in general, like hide glue, and the downside? Um, boy, the list is long. Uh, <laughs> number one, let's start with health and toxicity because most synthetic glues have some toxic uh, chemical that is not good for exposure, and that includes in the sanding and, and cleanup. Yellow glue also? I would not want to work with it. Um, mm. But basically, as a furniture conservator... I, I was restricted to reversible processes. And so using materials like shellac and wax and animal glue were essential for proper conservation of, of pre-industrial objects. They all will release with heat and moisture. You can control them and reverse them. Uh, obviously, the shellac releases with alcohol and the protein glues release with uh, heat and moisture. And that happens over time for centuries. So you can take something that's 150 years old, apply heat and moisture, and unglue it, repair it, and put it back. And fix it. So yeah. if you have a piece that comes in that's been done with epoxy or yellow glue it's or finished. Gorilla Glue, you, there's not much you can do. Dead on arrival. Gotcha. So, um, but a lot of people stop at, I mean, there's a lot of benefits of hide glue, all the things you said, and we've tested it uh, in fine woodworking and found that it was absolutely as strong as any of the high-tech glues available today. Um, but a lot of people are freaked out about it because the traditional way to, it, it doesn't really start setting. Uh, you have to keep it at 100 degrees in order for it to stay liquid. And so that meant keeping it in a hot pot, a glue pot. A glue pot. And so they would, which is a little double boiler sort of thing with right. water around it. Right. So, um, so that stops a lot of people because they don't want to wait for it to warm up or keep a pot going and keep an eye on it and all of that. It's a little bit more, it's different than just having well, a yellow going, glue Going bottle. back further than that, what stops people is when they walk into the supply house and they can't buy protein glues. They only have synthetic glues to choose from. Right. So right at the point of purchase, you have a difficulty in buying the product. And um, that is the starting point. Second is the fact that for three generations, we've lost the connection with the traditional glue pot. And that's not the case either in Europe, where you can buy the glue easily and, you, and people still have a continuum of knowledge on how to use it. But if you can make oatmeal, you can make protein glues. It's no different than oatmeal. You add water, you cook it. Mm -hmm. And it, it's got some, it, 
there's a lot of people who love it also because for certain kinds of assemblies, there's a natural slipperiness to it that helps assemblies go together, difficult chair assemblies, things like that. Since it's carried by water, it works really well with wood because the water and the wood and the glue are all sympathetic with each other, and it penetrates deeply, it bonds well, it cleans up easily, it's non-toxic, it's reversible, it's strong. I don't know what else. I, I wrote this article for SAPFM in one of their early journals, and the topic was, why not period glue? Because I was talking to these guys, and they all had period concepts and period tools, and they'd reach for their synthetic glue bottle, and I, I just had this immediate response, which is, why? What does that glue do that protein glues don't do? Why not period glues? What's your point? Mm-hmm. And they didn't have a good response, and, and uh, I've continued to push the idea for over 40 years that protein glues are healthy, normal, and perfect for woodworking. Yeah, so there's, the, uh, there's one other downside, and I think it's going to segue to a really important topic here, which is that Patrick has developed his own version of, of uh, hide glue. Um, called Old Brown Glue, which is making up a huge part of your business these days and has been a massive success. It's carried by all the retailers. To set up why Old Brown Glue was, is such a big deal, we need to talk about um, the you know whatever downside of regular hide glue that it addresses. Um, is So hide glue, not only do you have to keep it hot in a pot, yeah. but also it sets up pretty quickly. Once it starts to cool... It, you have a shorter working time than you would with some right. other glues. Right. I cook, which is great for veneering, like hammer veneering, absolutely, because it'll set up as you're yeah. as you're pressing the veneer. Yeah. It's the key to hammer veneering, and also for laying the marquetry pieces on the assembly board. You need to have them grip fast, tack fast. I would imagine, like you can do rub joints with it yep. and yep. everything else, but. That quick setup time can be an issue if you have a complicated furniture. Assembly when I was to do. when I before I just developed the old brown glue, liquid glue. Um, I would lay out all of my uh, clamps and my and dry fit and my procedure for repairing objects and go through several dry runs so I knew exactly where everything was before I put the glue on because I had a very limited amount of time to get pieces into position. A so few minutes, right? I, yeah, and I would have broken chairs with 20 or 30 different fragments that needed to be positioned carefully. Right. And so to solve that problem, I would glue two fragments together, wait till they set up and glue two more fragments together and wait till they set up and it took all day to repair a chair. Um, But in 1993 or 4, I was involved in France with a marquetry conservation group, an international group, in researching uh, protein glues for conservation. Um, That group is no longer together. But during that time, uh, in that research with that group, I discovered that it was possible to um, basically do what Napoleon did, which is to add urea to protein glues to extend the open time by reducing the gel point. Do you and mean Napoleon peed in his glue? Napoleon's horses uh, peed in the glue. Is that right? Is that a real story? That's, that's as far as I know. I haven't got the documentation, <laughs> but I've heard it verbally. And w- Okay, all right. And why was Napoleon trying to slow down or modify his glue? He was doing some military application I don't know huh. about, but... But the idea, it was, maybe Napoleon is just the name, but it was generically, it's, it's well known yeah. among early 19th century woodworkers by the fact that so many of them veneered columns, 
during that time from 1800 to 1840. That's and typical of the French that's, style. Well, that's not typical of France. It's typical of all the empire style. If you okay. look in America, you find veneered columns too. Gotcha. So my question was back in the early days of restoration, how do you veneer a column with protein glues if they set up so quickly? Well, you need to extend the open time. And so the addition of urea for me was the goal uh, of veneering columns. And I went subsequent to that and veneered a bunch of my pieces. I started doing a lot of empire furniture with veneered columns. So not only did it increase the... And I wrote an article for your magazine. You sure did. So we'll put a link to that uh, on this podcast so you can see... uh uh, all of Patrick's articles that have been in the magazine yep. uh, about veneering columns, that very thing. Also, every, uh, the benefits of high glue. High glue. Um, but there's what's great about old brown glue, and the reason so many guys like Brian Boggs and Kelly Mailer and all these people yeah. swear by it, and the reason it's become such a huge retail business for you, you can get it at Woodcraft, Rockler, all these places, is because it will be liquid at 80 degrees. So you can just sit it in a little bit of a warm water bath, you know, just to pour some hot water out of your tap, basically, and sit the bottle in there, and it's liquid. That is the key to giving it the longer open time, right? Yeah, like warming up a baby bottle. Uh Um, I knew, obviously, as I was working, that the glue pot was uh, dead on arrival, that most American woodworkers were not going to get a glue pot and deal with it, that... They were used to grabbing a plastic bottle and squeezing out the glue. So I knew if I could get the glue into a plastic bottle and make it usable as an application, that it would sell. And so by adding urea and working empirically, I went through 37 different batches of glue, and I threw them all out, developing the formula, which which actually works pretty well. And um, then I put it in a bottle, and, and it worked, and I started using it, and I worked on it for about five or six years until somebody said, why don't you sell it? And um, it was actually uh, Joel at Tools for Working Wood. Joel said, Moskowitz. He's, he's a great friend. He said, uh, I, I'll buy it if you put it in bottles and put labels on it. And so I did that, and then we got picked up by Lee Valley and Rockler and Woodcraft Supply, and the rest is history. But um, we're still not at the point where we're going to put our glue next to Gorilla Glue at Home Depot because it's a specific purpose glue for sophisticated woodworkers. It's not something that um, the general public needs to deal with. And I don't want the questions about the guy who bought it at Home Depot and says, it's a gel. How do I get it out of the bottle? Read the directions. You have to warm it up. Yeah. But it works so great. It, it, it has a very uh, deep penetration into the wood. It's fantastic for uh, hairline cracks and fractures and in repairing antiques when I have lots of uh, loose pieces to fit together. I can slip them around in position and get my clamps just right. If the phone rings, I can answer the phone and still get back to my clamping. So it gives me the freedom to repair things that otherwise I'd be stressed about. So what... Let's say, I mean, most of our readers and podcast listeners are not doing marquetry. They're putting together mortise and tenon joints and dovetails yep. and stuff like that, solid wood stuff. Yep. Um, is there anything they need to know in order to use this glue? No. It cleans up beautifully. It doesn't damage the finish. You use cold water to clean it up. Um, Just warm it up a little in a hot water yep. bath. You warm it up in a hot bath. You put it where you want to put it. And you what put kind of open together. time? Let's say my shop's 65 degrees. How long is it going to... You can. Uh, you might get five or six minutes uh, at a cold shop. You might get uh, 15, 20 minutes in a warm shop. But yeah, people don't realize that the, um, the loss of uh, moisture is how the glue cures. 
And so if you have a cold shop in the middle of winter and you want to glue something together, you take a hot rag of hot water and mm-hmm. you hit the surface of the joint with that. Mm-hmm. And that deposits a, a sizing film of hot water on the surface of the wood. So then when you put the glue on the wood, it's not going to set up so fast. It's not going to be diluted, but it's not going to be cooling. It's so you're just adding a little warm moisture. More in moisture to pre-size the wood mm-hmm. so that if you look at the pores of the wood absorbing the glue, mm-hmm. there's a, a bit of warm water in that pore. Mm-hmm. So when the glue hits it, it stays liquid and it penetrates deeper and you get a better joint by pre-sizing the wood with that hot mop. If you don't want to mess with if you don't want to do that, I mean, basically, you'll get more open time in a warmer shop. Absolutely. And so, um, also, the shelf life. So, it'll last about a year once they buy it from you? We guarantee it for 18 months. Uh, we have product that we've tested uh, for up to five years. It's still good glue, but we don't want people to know that. We want them to buy fresh glue. And do you say, uh, put it in the fridge? Will that extend it a significant amount yeah, of time? Yeah, you're killing me here. Because if you refrigerate it, it might last for five or ten years. If you freeze it, it'll last forever. What if it ends your uh, marriage, though, because you have uh, horse glue and sitting next to the If milk? your wife leaves you because you have an organic protein glue in the refrigerator, that's your problem. Yeah, maybe. Right. Okay. It's no different than yogurt. Yeah. And so if your animals eat it, they're not going to croak. Absolutely. It's totally safe. Excellent. So um, as we mentioned, uh, um, Patrick Edwards' shop is also a school. When did you start teaching the art of French marquetry? I opened it up to the public in the year 2000, and I've been teaching for the past 14 years. Um, I don't teach all the time. Most of the time, the workshop school area is my business. I do have classes uh, quarterly. Those classes are two weeks. Each week is a different stage. So we basically have two classes we teach four times a year. And you can take up to seven students in each class at we, a time? We have eight Chevrolets in mm-hmm. the classroom, but they're different sizes. And so if we had eight people all the same size, we'd have trouble. Luckily, that hasn't happened. So like N- eight NBA players, you'd be in trouble. If they're all six foot seven, we're in trouble. But luckily, we get a range of people sizes, and we can adjust them to the tools. Also, uh, we have room for one left-handed person each class. So teaching is definitely a way to... Uh uh, to save the past, for sure. That's another part of it, I right? think teaching is the, my reason of existence right now. Um, so let's roll all the way up to the future and talk about the Cartouche Award, which is an award given by SAPFM, SAP, Society of American Period Furniture Makers, for really a lifetime of achievement and contribution to yeah. the craft of historical furniture making. Um, what did that mean to you coming right now at this point in your career? Well, I was a... A member at the beginning when SAPFM formed in the year 2000, I'm I'm member number 170. I wasn't the first, but I was one of the early members. And I demonstrated at some of their early conferences um, and wrote for each of their three first journals. And I was very actively involved in the group. But then over the years, I got tired of going to Williamsburg in the winter because I live in Southern California. And the idea of going to Virginia in the snow is not the most important thing for me. But as I, I continue to, to, of course, be a member of the group and, and follow their, their efforts, I think the journal is one of the great publications on American furniture. However, the only way to explain the way the, the award uh, works for me and is the, it's like the Academy Award because it's a 
an award given to you by your peers. And it's a very significant award by people that I highly respect. And the previous winners are all good friends and, and mentors and peers that I think are some of the best woodworkers in this country. So being part of that club was a, a very humbling experience for me personally. And um, I was very grateful to go to Williamsburg and receive it. And um, the first time that I ever gave a, a PowerPoint presentation of my life's achievements was during the award ceremony at Williamsburg this past spring. And halfway through the presentation, I kept thinking to myself, oh, geez, did I make that? And I must have made that. I don't remember. I guess I made that too. And for me, I came out of there um, amazed at my own work and something I hadn't reflected on um, deeply before. It's a nice moment to take stock and kind of look back at what you have achieved, I'm guessing. Uh, I presented over 50 pieces uh, for the for the um, video, and it wasn't my entire body of work. Those are 50 pieces made by hand, um, most of them significantly complicated pieces of furniture. And um, there was a standing ovation, and that was probably the most dramatic point at the at the event. And I was really happy because I've known about you for a long time and um, I was really happy to see you get chosen um, because, you know, it was a recognition for the art of marquetry in, in a sense. Did you feel some sort of indication in a way that, that it was getting rec the recognition it deserves? Yes, and, and more than that, when I joined the group, it's the Society of American Period Furniture Makers and I knew there was a loophole because I'm an American but I don't make American period furniture. I make European period furniture. And so there's a kind of a loophole in the term, but all the previous winners of the Cartouche Award had been people on the East Coast generally who made American furniture, Chippendale, Queen Anne, Federal. And although I've made a few of those pieces in my career, the great body of my work is European furniture design. And so I knew that I was be, I was an outsider to the concept of the award. When they gave me the award, I realized that uh, perhaps they recognized that there was more um, period furniture than outside of the colonies. Yes, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> so if people want to learn more about about, I definitely encourage everyone to go check out Patrick's portfolio. But if they want to see your portfolio. And I'll, I'll definitely be posting some pictures on the shop tour that I do. Um, if they want to learn more about Old Brown Glue um, or taking classes at your school, is it wpatrickedwards.com? Is that the site to go to? Yeah, like everybody else these days, I have several websites. The oldbrownglue.com is the uh, glue site. Mm -hmm. Antiquerefinishersinc.com is my business for restoring antiques. I have the American School of French Marketry, Inc., which is the school site. But almost... Generally now, I send people to my blog because that is the link to everything I do, and it's wpatrickedwards.blogspot.com. That's okay. where I would start. And last but not least, what's the W for? I'm a William. I quit doing that in the fourth grade. Yeah, you went with Patrick. Well, they called me Bill, Billy, Will, Willie, and I, I said, no, I'm William. The Prince of Wales has no problem being William. Why can't I be William? <laughs> and so I, I gave up in the fifth grade. I went in. I said, I'm Patrick. And don't, I don't care if you call me Pat or not. I'm just not William. <laughs> On that note, thank you so much <laughs> for uh, for spending this time with us. I know that the listeners are going to love 
hearing from you and hearing about you. And thanks for all the wonderful time in your shop today. Hey, say you're a good friend, and I've followed your career, and I think you're doing great at fine woodworking, so don't go anywhere. Thanks a lot, man. Okay, bye-bye. All right, Asa, job well done with Patrick. That was really fun. It was fun to be out there in San Diego. And you have more juicy tidbits to come from Patrick? Yeah, we're, we're putting together an audio slideshow, uh, Lord willing, that um, uh, will be a shop tour. And nice. you get to see everything in his shop and a little more of his furniture and how he works. And it's pretty cool. We'll, uh, we'll get that out as, as quickly as we can. I'll tell you one thing. Since yeah. Asa said it Go was ahead. nice to be out in San Diego, when right. I... Asa is the person who hired me to work at the magazine, and he was uh, the editor for the entire time I've been here except for recently. And he used to always ask me, he's like, oh, have you, ever, have you been out to California yet for a jo- you know for work? And I'm like, no, I haven't. He goes, what, you haven't? And I have to once again point out to him, no, Asa, because every time a job in California comes you up, take you take it. <laughs> nice. I don't have the power to do that anymore. No, so they're you all yours. That's right. I've already, finally, I have a little bit of seniority on staff. You I can do. start to pull some weight. Throw your weight around. That's right. Well, guys, um, we get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store, and every week we like to read a few. So uh, here's a couple for this week. From somewhere in the swamps of New Jersey, really enjoy listening to these podcasts. Excellent discussions mixed with humor. Makes woodworking fun and gives me my fix when I'm stuck on an airplane or in a hotel room a long way from home. From Splinterville Woodworker, convinced me to resubscribe. Sweet. I thoroughly enjoy your podcast. I'm currently listening to them in chronological order. I'm a retired history teacher. After the shameless plugs, your term, not mine, I took your advice and subscribed to both the magazine and the website so I could access back issues and articles referenced in the podcasts. I thought I was a woodworker, but after listening to you, I realize I have a long ways to go. Thanks for elevating my expectations and the education needed to get where I want to go. You know, I wanted to yeah. just throw in that we, we really appreciate uh, this feedback. It's awesome. It feels really great to know that um, this audio-only content it is uh mean it's meaningful to people it's it's awesome and uh we would love to have some maybe someday we've always talked about it we could get a phone integrated into here and actually take live calls but it it it's awesome to be a part of this woodworking community yeah i would say even the uh, negative comments that we get which they do exist is is if they're constructive we we take them in for sure yeah indeed um well, it's the ones about my mom. I really, I can't. <laughs> those, I wrote all those. Yes. <laughs> you wrote those, Ed. <laughs> that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on July 11th for our next podcast. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into Shop Talk at Taunton.com. T a u n t o n dot com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes. Stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, y'all. In this section, you guys go uh, deep dish into Chevrolets and why, I don't know what what Chevrolets have to do with woodworking. (laughs) But um, actually, drunk uncle, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, <laughs> or Cliff Clavin. It's, uh, you know, the Romans used Chevrolets to cut their uh, inlay. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>